Well, hello there. Welcome to uh, Jay Flaunce's Ignorance episode, whatever this is. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting here with my father, Jim Hanna, who's got some uh, things he's been organizing at the Community of Christ Church that he was telling me about uh, briefly this morning that are really exciting and really interesting uh, to... Uh, and I thought that we'd get captured on film, the, or the, let's see, that's not film, is it? Captured audioly, digitally audioly, uh, your story that you shared with me this morning about the author, uh, who's going to be arriving the, the whole event. If you want to start at the beginning and kind of tell us about the event and I'll try not to interrupt a ton with too many inane questions. <laughs> Okay, well, August 9th of this year will be the 70-year anniversary of the bombing of the city of Nagasaki. And this year, there have been a lot of 70-year anniversary occasions because that would have been D-Day and V-Day and everything else related to World War I. Often overlooked in all that is that in modern-day warfare, the majority of deaths in the 20th century have been civilian not military. So in other words, there have been more men, women, and children who were non-military killed in these wars than there were actually military people who were directly involved in the conflict. The overall total of people who've died in, so we're speaking specifically about World War II? Yes. But the Well, or, actually the 20th century, so World War I and World War II, and when you combine those and Vietnam and all the other conflicts we've been involved with, there are actually more civilian deaths than there are military personnel deaths. Oh, I see. Yeah. I, and I had, I had thought about that in terms of like Vietnam, but not in terms of World War II. Mm -hmm. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, it's basically just true the 20th century and on into the 21st century, because like if you were to think about what happened in Gaza last year when Israel went in, uh, it was about 200 to 1, you know, <laughs> and most of those people who died, uh, in terms in that conflict were civilians, not military. And when I think about, I wonder, so in World War One, with, let's see, in World War One, there was not carpet bombing of cities yet. That's correct. Um, so the ratio has grown. Like back in World War One, there would have been more, a, a greater proportion of yeah. actual military deaths because they were into trench warfare and mustard gas and all that sort of thing. So but in a civil war, most of the people who died would have been combatants? Is Absolutely. that true? Oh, yeah. yeah. But it, the ratio of civilian mortality has gotten worse in the 20th That's century correct. and beyond. As, as we basically have gotten smarter, so to speak, with these smart bombs, and especially with drones and, and things like that, we have found ways of uh, diminishing the loss of military personnel, who seem to be the lives that the military is most concerned about. But the cost of that, the trade-off, has been that there are more civilian people who have died, proportionately. Yeah, yeah wow. So in, uh, so specifically, the 70-year anniversary of Nagasaki is... August 9th. This year. Yes. Mm -hmm. 2015, yeah. And so you're organizing an event at the, the Community of Christ Church, and maybe walk us through what the event is, what's, what's it named and who all is going to be there and because you've got some amazing guests of honor that are coming is my understanding yes yeah, so we're really delighted to be able to host uh, richard rhodes and richard is a person who has been studying the atomic age for over three decades and his first book called the making of the atomic bomb that he published back in the late 1960s 
was a Pulitzer Prize uh, uh, award winner for literature. And for 30 years, he's been kind of pursuing that. So he's written three subsequent historical books on about the nuclear age, uh, ending with his last book, which is called The Twilight of the Bombs. And in this book, he made the statement in the closing chapter that within his lifetime, or probably within his children's lifetime, or most certainly in the lifetime of his grandchildren, that weapons of mass destruction will be uh, recognized for uh, what they uh, truly are, which are crimes against humanity, and that they will be abolished. And so that was kind of what got us to thinking about, wow, what better person to come and speak if we could get him to uh, share about nuclear weapons and the future and see, have him explain why after 30 years of studying this, and there have been so many developments during the course of that, both up and down about whether or not we might eventually abolish them, why he came to that conclusion. And we thought that would be a good thing for him to explore. So so he lives in the San Francisco area, I believe, and his, right. his website says, I think you told me this morning, that he's working on a new book and hey don't don't bother me i'm <laughs> i'm very yeah. busy working on my new book which has to do with cuba you said the I history think I, of cuba. I couldn't say that for sure but i think that's that's correct but uh nonetheless uh he's Not. written he's written over 40 books and so he's he's really a very prolific author and usually doesn't do public appearances apparently while he's while he's doing that but uh, to our surprise, when we contacted him, he replied that he could think of a, no better place to be on August 9th, 2015, than in Independence, Missouri, uh, talking about the Nagasaki commemorative. So we were delighted and uh, really looked forward to his his talk. So his connection to Independence is, I mean, how is he connected to Independence? Well, uh, he actually was uh, born in Kansas City, Kansas, just right, right across the river from uh, Independence. And then uh, as a child, he was from an, uh, an abusive background, and he and his brother escaped that background and were uh, came to Independence, where there's a, a drum farm institute for boys, which was for mostly for orphan boys. And he actually grew up there, I think from age 10 on, I think it was. So I think he had a sense of historic connection to the place and of course he'd be very aware of the history of of uh, independence because that's the hometown of president truman who made the decision to drop the first atomic bombs mm -hmm. so the so that location which happens to be where you live in the headquarters of the the church mm -hmm. um is very significant with the uh about all of nuclear proliferation issues i i would think that that's kind of a uh, a geographical focal point from a historical context of uh, how do we wrestle with these weapons that mankind has figured out how to make and unfortunately used um, and how do we control them in the future? How do we, how do we abolish them hopefully in our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes or our grandchildren's lifetimes or because I can't imagine a scenario where, the use of them is a good thing for anyone. Yeah, I, th I think even the people who were the architects of the uh, what they called mad philosophy, which is mutually assured destruction, uh, using nuclear weapons as deterrence, those very people, that would be Kissinger and Nunn and Schultz and 
the, the fellows were all called, they were like secretaries of defense and secretaries of state back in that era. And they were called the four horsemen of the apocalypse because they actually were the, the forerunners on, on the, that policy of mutually assured destruction as a deterrent. Even they, in recent years, like in the last seven years or so, have reversed their opinion about that, saying that there may have been a time when nuclear weapons were an effective deterrent, but that time has passed. And the reason for that is they're, they, they're convinced that the proliferation of nuclear materials, the highly enriched uranium or the weapons themselves, is so widespread now that eventually they're going to hand it, fall into the hands of either terrorist or terrorist groups or nations, and they will be uh, used in a very destructive way. And so they, they came to the conclusion that really the only way to guard against that is to eventually eliminate them. And so they're, they're working on groups like Nuclear Zero and so forth where they're trying to say it's time now to recognize that these weapons of mass destruction have no use. They, ha they do not serve as a deterrent. As a matter of fact, the continued use of them and the continued proliferation of, as a result of people relying on them for deterrence is really prompting more proliferation, which is making the world a much more dangerous place. And they're quite concerned about the direction we're taking. They, they keep talking about a tipping point. You know, that there, there needs, to, we need to work towards a, a tipping point away from nuclear weapons in such a way that we can actually save humanity and actually save the whole world because these are actually now not just weapons like <laughs> the atomic bombing of Japan, not minimizing it because, you know, 160,000 people were killed in those uh, bombings are roughly numbers vary quite a bit but those were basically small weapons compared to any of the weapons that we have today and more like firecrackers compared to what we can do today so now we actually have nuclear weapons about 16,000 are estimated to be in the world and those weapons uh, several times over could actually be weapons of omnicide not just not just suicide or, you know, but actually just omnicide so that life as we know it would be utterly over. Yeah. I mean, growing up, I, I think I understood the concept of mutually assured destruction in the context of the U.S. versus Russia in the Cold War. Soviet like, Union. Mm -hmm. or, yeah, sorry. Um, that I could wrap my head around as a, okay, well, yeah, as long as we both have all these weapons and they're all pointed at each other, obviously no one's going to, hopefully no one's going to press the bomb, yeah. press the button. And immediately after World War II and the Cold War era, when you only had two major players, you know, I, I could see how strategically maybe that made sense in that mindset, in that particular small slice of time. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's another 240 nations in the world and there's lots of people who don't like us. And, uh, don't like any other country for whatever reason. So India, Pakistan, you know, have problems and now they're both nuclear arms. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think, uh, the mutually assured destruction strategy fits a global landscape of, uh, hundreds of despots that are not hundreds of despots, but you know, if, if I was a rogue nation leader of, wherever, then of course I would want the bomb. Why wouldn't I want the bomb that would keep the crazy <laughs> Americans or whoever it is, you know, out of my country? I mean, why wouldn't I want the, the most dangerous weapon on the planet? You know, <laughs> so I'm motivated as a, you know, crazy leader of my, uh, my little nation where I can, you know, control people. I'm very motivated to have the bomb. So 
Well, it's interesting because it's even today, it, it really primarily is two world powers pitted against each other. Now it's the United States and Russia who has who have the weapons. Ninety percent of the weapons, nuclear weapons, are in their possession. So them coming to some kind of a resolution is going to be ultimately very important to the process of eventually eliminating them. The the irony of all that is that because those superpowers keep clinging to their weapons, even though 40 years ago they promised that if the rest of the world wouldn't develop nuclear weaponry, we would diminish and eventually eliminate our nuclear weapons. The, the irony is that by them clinging to them, they actually are encouraging and fostering nuclear proliferation towards which eventually it's almost inevitable. These things are manufactured to go off and inevitably either through accident or design or just plain madness and all these things can happen easily. I mean, it's, it's rather frightening and appalling to read how many near disasters we've had in the last 40 years relative to nuclear weapons and the Cuban missile crisis, you know, when, which, uh, everybody just, as they look back in retrospect, and even at the time realize this is one hell of a gamble, as they called it. And there's a book by that title. And to recognize that there were actually in, uh, at that time, Soviet Union uh, submarines, they had nuclear-tipped torpedoes. And they were out there approaching Cuba when the Cuban blockade happened and all that sort of thing. And there's even a current movie about that, which indicates that there was a commander who was you know, who had the power to actually launch those missiles in his own power and chose not to, thereby averting the humongous disaster that that would have... A Russian uh, yeah. sub, right. uh, the the captain of the submarine, right. had under his own authority the ability to launch. Right, and chose not to. Well, that was nice of him. Well, it was, yeah. <laughs> Thank and you. It, and it just really makes you realize <laughs> how think that guy. <laughs> yeah, how tenuous all this stuff is, you know. Yeah. Just and there's there've been so many instances like uh you know, you know, for instance, the the radar of the Soviet Union would would see what was interpreted to be a, a nuclear launch. Well, it turned out to be a malfunction and there but there were discussions and preparations going on whether to fire a counterstrike, of course, because you only have a certain window of opportunity to launch your counterstrike, otherwise your weapons will be destroyed. So mm-hmm. there's a huge amount of pressure that's involved. And it was just because some commander somewhere along the way said, oh, this has got to be a mistake, you know, even though I, I see what's on the screen there, but that cannot be the case. And he's determined not to launch the counteroffensive. Um, that's what saved the world. I mean, it's just, when you read this stuff, it, this is not science fiction. This is like science fact mm-hmm. about things that actually almost happen. So we're really, when John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy said that in the atomic age, we're all living under the sword of Damocles. That is the, an allusion to an old Greek myth about a sword hanging by the slenderest of threads. You know, that's what I've lived all my life. I have never lived anywhere other than beneath the shadow of the bomb. I've never had one single day of my life because I was born in 1947, all my life. I've never known but what this could be my last instant. I mean, that's how bizarre it is. How, what would it feel like? I keep wondering how amazing would that feel? for me to live long enough to actually walk without having to know that this whole beautiful, wondrous planet of ours could actually be destroyed by our our own accident or design or madness or whatever it is. Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I've never, I've never drawn a single breath 
without the awareness it could be my last because of not because of some natural disaster, but a very unnatural disaster of our own making. Well, you and I have been on flights to Australia, and while we were over the Southern Pacific, you were not an instant away from being vaporized because nobody targets the Southern Pacific Ocean for a nuclear war. <laughs> I so guess I, just, I was like free to, yes, for a, like to point a, out a few hours. A few hours. You told me that those six-hour <laughs> flights felt like days. So I'd just like to go on record that you have spent days of your life. Yes, yes, I guess that's true. I, I have, I've used hyperbole in an inappropriate fashion. Right. And I do apologize yeah. to all these podcast millions that are listening. That's, uh, Our fact-check department is very strange. No, I think, I think that's only true, though, because I, even recognizing <laughs> the truth of what you say, that I maybe would not have been vaporized in that, inst- in that instant, there is nonetheless the realization that if these things all, even a thousand of them, were to go off, my death along with all uh, the rest of humanity, would be assured in oh, such yeah. a way that in, in a certain period of time. But not in an instant. But not in an instant. That's so, right. Yeah, right. I, yeah I, I stand corrected <laughs> and, and dejected. <laughs> the event that you're organizing on the 70th anniversary, right? Mm-hmm. Can you give me an outline of the some of the things you were describing to me this morning? It's really cool stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, Richard Rhodes and it is open to the public, or yes, it's open need? to the public, no charge, and it's at the uh, Community of Christ Temple in Independence, Missouri, at uh, two o'clock on Sunday, August ninth, the seventy-year anniversary of the bombing, bombing of Nagasaki. So Richard Rhodes, who's the the Kansas City Star locally referred him referred to him as the undisputed oracle of the atomic age, the atomic era. Uh, so he's a person that's a very acknowledged uh, expert in this field, having spent more than 30 years uh, in study and writing about it. Um, he's going to be speaking. Uh, uh, the topic of his speech will be uh, uh, the twilight of the bombs, in which he uh, makes the assertion that uh, within his lifetime, probably within the li- lifetime of his children or certainly in the, within the lifetimes of his grandchildren that weapons of mass destruction, including nuclear weapons, will be done away with and that they will be uh, recognized as uh, crimes against humanity to even possess them, to have possessed them. So his, uh, his uh, talk will uh, be followed by the uh, group going... Um, out the west doors of the temple and going to the world plaza there'll be an event there in which the there's a there's a a global map of the world there and there'll be uh, orange cones placed on the map that indicate the nations which have nuclear weapons there'll be some children who will gather up those cones and place them at the foot of a statue which uh, reminds people of the promise of the scriptural promise of Isaiah which indicates that it's someday that the nations of the world will beat their swords into plowshares and people will live in peace. And from there, then, the group will move over to the United Nations Peace Plaza, which is adjacent to it, and we will be planting a survivor tree uh, at that site, which will um, memorialize the theme of the event, which is uh, remembering Nagasaki and propagating hope. What is a survivor tree? Well, a survivor tree... Uh, has quite a history, uh, kind of going back to the, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, much to this, these, these things happened in, you know, in August 
and much to the surprise of the residents there that uh, in the spring of that following year, they discovered that some of the cherry trees had actually blossomed out. Those trees which they thought were blackened and scarred to the point that would have killed them, it didn't actually kill them. And as a symbol of hope, people came to see them, witness them, and people flocked in from all over to to take a look at this uh, symbol of hope. So that's kind of what we're trying to convey in this event: is to try to say we're not just we're not we're not reassigning blame, we're not we're not trying to stir up a bunch of fear. We're just trying to say that lift up a hopeful ensign, like Richard Rhodes is talking about, that one day, hopefully, not too not too distant future we will see the, the end of nuclear weapons. Hmm. Um, I think you told me that the United Nations Peace Pavilion is a one-of-a-kind mm-hmm. uh, installment. How many years has that been there? And the, the United Nations passed a resolution to place that in Independence, Missouri, or how did that work? Well, no, actually the the, the United Nations Peace Plaza was it's, I'm not sure exactly what the time frame is. I can remember when they were uh, finishing it, so I'd say within the last 15 years or so. And it was actually uh, just a group of citizens who wanted to uh, make that connection between the United Nations and, in particular, Community of Christ. Uh, uh, when the United Nations Charter was signed by the United States, uh, President Truman came to the Community of Christ Auditorium, which is right next to the Peace Plaza, and made that announcement to the world. And so there's kind of a link up between Truman and the atomic bombing, of course, and also the, the United Nations. So that's what it commemorates. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a really beautiful, uh, uh, fountain, water fountain. And there's a, a young girl who, uh, is holding aloft a, a, a dove of peace, symbolic of the, the desire of peace that the United Nations was formed for to try to say after World War II, you know, Let's not do this again. Let's find a better way of resolving tensions and conflict than going to war and the horrible effects of war. Hmm. Wow. So, yeah, uh, the, I, I live in Omaha, so it, it'll be a drive down, which I will make on, in August if I'm, if I'm in town. I'm not sure what's going on in August so far. <laughs> but if I'm not off gallivanting the world, then I'll, I'll have to make the drive down for that. Uh, ceremony. So, so it's a one-day event with this speaker, mm-hmm. the, the special yes, it's on speaker. Sunday, August 9th from two to four p.m. And uh, yeah. you're welcome to stay at our house. Oh, excellent, <laughs> awesome! <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, what else? I didn't want to throw in this. I don't know how many spoilers you want to give away about the the ceremony itself, but you have a gong f- from Japan that will chime for the remembrance of the. We're doing it. We have a lot of uh, ideas, and, and I don't want to spoil the, I don't want right. to spoil the theatrics <laughs> of the uh, event. So, well, one of the the things that we're wanting to put in place is to uh, get a an Oriental gong and actually sound the gong seventy times for the seventy years in which there haven't been any nuclear weapons detonated. I think it's really interesting to try to think about Nagasaki as the last and only time that nuclear weapons have been used, hopefully. Except Hiroshima? Well, Hiroshima came first and Nagasaki came oh, second. Nagasaki, the last. Right. Ah. So when in our thinking, we're wanting to commemorate in a hopeful way that this is the last time. 70 years it ago. Was the, it's the only time. Right. Uh, not the only time, but it's the last time that nuclear weapons will be used. And that's our, we're, we're trying to project ahead and say that's already true. 
you know, and hoping that that by enough people anticipating that and enough civil movements which are occurring all around the world right now, even as we speak, there it's astounding to us. We have been involved in this issue for about seven years, and there's hardly a week that goes by but what my wife and I uh, don't discover new organizations, whole entire organizations, and many, many people that are quite concerned about this issue and trying to do something about it. So just within the last year, there have been three international gatherings of people who are trying to explore the humanitarian effects of nuclear weapons and trying to say never again, which is what all the Habakasha, the survivors from these two bombings, are, are, have always said. It's not about blaming it's about saying, hey, never again. Like Marriage for Peace has been very strong in this uh, area, and they've, they've been trying to say cities are not targets. Cities are places where civilians live or people, humans live, and not, not to be targeted. Yeah. And so that we've had these three international uh, gatherings uh, in uh, Mexico and Austria. And where was the other one? The other one was in Norway. And these humanitarian conferences are all, all part of civil society trying to say to the governments of the world, hey, let's pay attention here. We said 40 years ago we were going to reduce and eliminate these nuclear weapons. Let's keep working on that because the, the consequences of failing to work on that are so horrific they, they're really unimaginable. And we don't ever want to see that happen. And so just in recent years there have been these three uh, international conferences, the uh, there's also been really powerful statements made by groups like the American Red Cross, the International Red Cross, the Red Cross, the uh, uh, Red Crescent Society, uh, the Physicians for Social Responsibility. Uh, so many groups have, even in recent years, even though a lot of people have forgotten about this issue since the 1980s when it was really on everyone's mind at the height of the Cold War, but it's not over. And people are being reminded that 16,000 Nuclear weapons, even a thousand of them being used, would would create climate change, which would probably that alone would would uh, even just a hundred of them, as I understand the projections, uh, the use of a hundred nuclear weapons is projected would create so much uh, soot and dust and so forth in the upper atmosphere to create enough cooling effect as to affect crops, and that alone could kill about a billion people of the Earth's population. So that's what a hundred would do. It's unimaginable what a thousand could do. Basically, that would be the end of the world as we know it for sure. So we have 16,000 of these still around. Which is way down, right? Yes, that's correct. At one time, at the height of the Cold War, there were 70,000 Ready to go. Warheads ready to, yeah, a lot of them ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. So now there are 16,000. They're not all actively ready to go. I mean, by virtue of some uh, work that President Obama did, the United States and uh, Russia have both agreed to to a deployment, I think, of about 1,250 each. So there's oh, still there's still twenty five twelve fifty right okay and I forget the exact time frame but within a year or so they're supposed to be down to I think it's twelve hundred and fifty each well that's still a huge and number. each one is three hundred times more powerful or thousands of times more powerful than yeah than any of the bombs that have actually so atomic bombs that have actually been used so twelve hundred fifty yeah. you'd think. Yeah, you'd uh, think a handful of them. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> you'd it's think just, five might be plenty. Yeah, you, yeah, you really would think so. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, know how, how much how many times you want the rebel to jump? You know, I mean, you know, isn't isn't one sufficient? You know, or two? So. Yeah. 
So, but we're trying not to focus on that. We're trying. Well, to, we are trying to. I, I see it as a positive sign. I I can't remember if you agreed with me or not that the total number is gone down. Right? Yeah, from because, seventy thousand to about sixteen thousand. So that that's yeah, progress. That progress. might mean that in my son's life, mm-hmm. right, that we do get serious about getting down into the triple digits. Right. That that does happen, and it right. seems to me that that is good in terms of if if a mistake is going to happen, hopefully. Uh, what's hopefully it's far less likely to happen the more correct focused you know we get and the 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 total number is a lot smaller okay we're less likely so you know politics is always rough but if but I I see that as progress thousands down or tens of thousands down mm-hmm. yeah so I, I don't know if that will hit zero in this century but um. It'd be nice to get to a point where you could actually start having a realistic conversation about zero, right? As opposed to right now, where you know we're so far away from zero that it's right. Let's just try to get into the hundreds would be huge progress. Yeah. And so even if you were, even if if you did succeed in getting them into the hundreds, for instance, well, that means just a lot less likelihood of accident, less, yeah. a lot less likelihood of some some government officials or some total government going berserk on you, uh, you know, a lot less accident, a lot less likelihood if something does detonate, it's going to be like, <laughs> you know, and our, the end. The resources are, are more focused on fewer of these things. Right. And therefore, monitoring hopefully, them right. would be much simpler if you're monitoring 300 than if you're monitoring 16,000. Much, oh, much yeah. more difficult to, to, to do. So there's just, in my way of thinking, there's just every reason to say every one of these that we can reduce that could save tens of thousands of lives and oh, millions of lives, right? Just one of them. Well, I don't know that with one nuclear weapon you could kill millions outright. Really? Now, over time, you you probably could. Well, I don't know. You I've might. been watching the wrong movies because <laughs> I thought <laughs> I don't know. There are there are you know if one who's curious about that could actually uh, get online and there are. There are projections about that. So what happens if you drop a 10 megaton bomb on, on a city number X? Well, you the, know, what, what, how many people would die immediately? How many would probably die from uh, injury and, and the lack of medical attention? And how many over time would die of the effects of radiation? I mean, it's a, it's kind of, it doesn't all just happen in an instant. Like, like in, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, half of them died instantly, but the other half of them died, you know, within months because of radiation sickness, they called it. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, uh, did you want to talk about your um, your work with the the plant in Independence or in the Missouri in near where you live? There's a plant that uh, was decommissioned but then renovated. And do you want to talk about or not? Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to talk about whatever you don't want to talk about. No, it's been a major part of uh, PeaceWorks Kansas City. has been working on this for a number of years and has made some significant uh, progress in trying to uh, create public awareness. This is the real issue is, is public awareness and education because Kansas City, Missouri, has been one of the very pivotal sites in in the United States nuclear arsenal for 65 years. And yet if you talk to people, even people that live in fairly close proximity to the old, what they call the old Bannister Road complex, which has now been abandoned after 65 years, even if you talk to those people, many of them are not aware of what they were doing there. It's kind of like out in, out in Colorado, you know, when they were, <laughs> they, they went out, they went, when they went out and interviewed people about the, 
the uh, nuclear weapons facilities out there. People thought, oh, yeah, they're manufacturing um, refrigerators. or they're, you know, they're, They had no idea what was really going on, and, and that's true in Kansas City. So, well, and, it, and part of that is intentional. I mean, it, we don't want to advertise where our defense things are being manufactured. Yeah, right? I'm sure because that's true. Right. Depending on what enemy you're trying to defend yourself from. Right. Yeah. It's important they not know that this is actually a plant that's doing whatever it is. Right. And there's a lot more openness than there used to be because the Manhattan Project, the entire thing was sealed and unknown for 40 oh, yeah. years. Right? Yeah, very much so. And and now and, you, just regular citizen Joe that happens to live there, know what's going on mm-hmm. in the plant right down the road. I mean, you, we you, know that we know that in that facility – they have for the last 65 years and now are continuing to do so in the next, for the next 20 years, possibly. Um, they manufacture 85% of the components, the non-nuclear components. They don't actually deal with the nuclear components, but all the guidance systems and the, and so forth are, are actually created in Kansas City, 85% of them in Kansas City. So yeah, it's a, it's a big issue. Uh, you know, it's, funny one thing i've never heard anybody discuss in a public way uh, about all that what you were alluding to the fact that you wouldn't want people to know where this is happening if this is central like 85 percent is happening in kansas city well if you stop and think about that for even a moment you recognize well people are going to know that and are going to find out about that and so that makes you a target what what people it seems to me what nations and individuals don't understand is like if they are nuclear armed they are the ones most likely to be numero uno on any other nation that has nuclear weapons. I mean, oh sure. I mean, they're not going to go. You know, not, they're not as likely to go drop a bomb on New Zealand. You know, because they have no nuclear weapons, and and like Australia or the, you know those those sorts of places, they're more likely to you know target places which are you know would have the responsive capacity to harm them in return. So, but no one ever thinks about that. You know, no one in, that I've ever heard in Kansas City ever thinks about that. You know, similarly in, in the Kansas City area, we have the Whiteman Air Force Base very close. Well, that's where the drones, one of the places the drones are being sent out to do all these, these supposedly targeted <laughs> assassinations, which really are killing more civilians than, than they are targets, you know, military targets. So and, the, and not too far away, you have the, uh, near Independence, just east of Independence, you have the, the a plant, the Lake City plant, which is create, which is actually manufacturing nearly all the small arms munitions and for the whole U.S. <laughs> military. So you, right in our area, we have these three, you know, we have these three major centers of war production and and so forth. But no one ever seems to have occurred to them that, oh, geez, you know, that could kind of make us a target. You know, I, you know, I, I just don't understand that, whether that's just denial or uh, the, the PR campaigns have been so successful that people push it to the side. I mean, I, I really do think one of the issues we have is that people, these things are so horrific that you, they're, they're unthinkable. And so you don't want to think about them. They're unspeakable. So you don't want to speak about them. You, know? you just want to, like, spend your energy just kind of acting as if they didn't exist, you know. And and if we keep doing that, there are going to be ultimately some really bad consequences of that. It's going to be when the civil societies of the world, who are the ones who are mainly getting killed in modern warfare, when they finally say, you know what? Hell no, I won't go. 
you know, and no, we're not going to be a nuclear armed nation. And we're not going to be going around all over the world trying to be the world's policeman and all these things that we seem so anxious to do. It's like it's my concern for the United States at this point is that we have become so militaristic that we see all problems when they arise. The first solution, the easiest solution, is military. Only after we go in there, like in Iraq and Afghanistan, for instance, after all, all of our so many of our people and so many more of their people have been killed. Only after we do that for a certain number of years and the U.S. public finally gets tired of hearing about it or whatever it is that creates, makes politicians change their mind, then you hear even military people saying, oh, this isn't going to be something that we solve militarily. We have to have diplomatic, you know, we have to discuss and we have to, I mean, so why don't we start there instead of ending up there? Why do so many people, especially innocent people, women and children and non-combatants, why do the all these people have to die and all that carnage and wasted resources and wasted lives and so forth. Why do we do all that killing first? And then we say, oops, yeah. Oh gosh, darn it. And you know, we need to, we need to find an alternative. Well, duh, we have alternatives. You know, we have the ability to negotiate and we have, we have understandings about mediation and reconciliation and communication and other alternatives to militarism. I just am really concern about our reliance on violence and militarism as the way to remain numero uno or all this macho thing that uh, seems to invade our psyche. It's not really making us more safe. It's really making us more enemies. And those enemies are not going to forget. Every time we send out a drone and we kill not only maybe a combatant, but also kill a whole family at a wedding ceremony or a funeral or something like that. And some of this is even done, I think, intentionally, you know, have a first blast and then follow a second blast and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's just appalling. And and you're kind of wondering, well, why are they angry at us? You know, <laughs> I remember, I remember George W. Bush right after 9-11, you know, saying, well, well, why do they hate us so? Or something to that effect. Well, wake up. <laughs> you know, why do they hate you so? Well, there was a, there was an independently elected, uh, leader of Iran that we decided, you know what? Or of Iraq, excuse me, that we decided, you know what? We, we don't want that leader. We're going to replace that leader was who, someone else. Who was independently elected? Well, now you. No. Oh, never mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the, uh, so I think the U.S. State Department would say that hey, we spend millions of dollars trying to be diplomatically engaged with nations all over the world and trying to, you know, come to peaceful solutions, et cetera. And we were heavily blah 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 blah. I think it's fair to. I, I think the numbers are that their budget for negotiation and working with people to try it, you know, through nonviolent means is dwarfed by the budget of the, Hey, we'll blow them up, you know, D- department of defense. I think the state department budget and the department of defense budget are, you know, laughably, uh, not balanced. Right. Well, yeah, I so, have no idea what the ratio would be. Yeah. It would be laughable yeah. if it weren't so pitiful, probably if you were to compare and contrast the two, what we spend on militarism compared to what we spend for everything else. I'm not sure what the very latest figures are. It keeps going up and down. But if we're talking about the discretionary U.S. tax dollars, approximately half of our discretionary 
income tax dollars go towards militarism in one form or another, either paying for present and future wars and research and all that stuff, or paying for past wars, which are still <laughs> we're still indebted for and so forth. So, uh, it, it's just it's just unbelievable, and to me, it's unconscionable. It's it's, it's uh, I and keep then, thinking if we spent that money actually in human potential development. Then instead of making all these enemies, we'd start to be making friends, and we wouldn't need so much military response because there wouldn't be so many people angry with us and and all that. Uh, yeah, I, I think what happens is the the military leaders whose job it is is to destroy things and kill people. I mean, that's their job, right? And hopefully, well, it's the like, last. That's a little harsh. I mean, I think they view their job as as you know, peace through strength. Well, so what I've heard military people tell me is that yeah, you have to be the strongest. So that you never have to use it. Yeah, weakness invites attack. Right, know, is the philosophy, and uh, I, I think there's some merit to that. But at some point, you you get so <laughs> strong and so overbalanced, like which is where I think the United States is right now. You know, us spending more on our military than the next 15 nations combined, and a lot of them are our allies. <laughs> I mean, there's an imbalance to the point that while you think you're defending yourself and you, you have a defense department and you have defense expenditures, in actuality, those things at some point are no longer defensive. They're actually offensive, and other nations see that. And so that then that prompts a fear response in them, that that prompts them to want to go out and have their own weapons so that they have some chance of not being rolled over by this great big you know, military presence and so forth. So like just thinking in terms of the nuclear club, which includes about nine nations right now, people want to join that club. Why is that? Well, that's because these nations are obviously not serious about getting rid of these weapons, and it gives them that sort of prestige in the international. They're big players now in the international scene, and so there's a lot of national pride to become a a nuclear armed nation and all this sort of stuff. And until the nations who have those weapons decide to relinquish those weapons, that's always going to be an incentive for the other nations to say, hey, we want those too. If you think they're so valuable, you will not give them up. Well, we want them too because we want to be part of the nuclear club. We want to be you know, part of that exclusive membership, and that gives us cred because, wow, now we're, we're strong and mighty just like you know, all these nuclear nations, and, and otherwise you're not. Yeah, you're yeah. just a puny nation that can just be rolled right over, you know, well— even if you were a poor nation, I can see the rationale why a poor nation would spend a lot of money just to develop a few nuclear weapons because that would protect them in their thinking yeah. from a larger nuclear power because they know that if they can even just get a few of them off, the kind of devastation that could cause would cause that nation to think twice before they messed with them, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so that's, see, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's like you become so powerful, you become muscle bound. That's what I think is wrong with our, with our, with us at this point. Like we have, oh. we've flexed our muscle so much out in the world that we've become muscle bound. And I think we're, we're no longer effective. Well, I, I, I think what military people would say is that we are the, option of last resort, right? And if you decide to use us, we will kill them. That's how we will blow stuff up. We will kill people. That's We are good at that. That's what we do, you know? I, I think they don't want to be used. Yes, strength, peace through strength, right? Mm-hmm. But when they are used, they're the people who are good at doing that. They're the good people mm-hmm. that are good at leveling whatever needs to get leveled and killing whoever needs to get killed. And they take pride in that 
skill set, as they should, because if we need it, mm-hmm. I'm glad those people are there that can yeah. do that thing. That's well, great. It's like a police officer, you know. I'm I'm glad, even though I see I don't want to use lethal force myself because I'm not trained to do it. I'm not inclined to do it, etc. You know, I'm not skilled to do it. Um, but I'm glad that there are. So I'm not, you know, like a total mm-hmm. pacifist in that sense of the word. And so I can see some uh, place for a military presence. But what my contention yeah. is that it's, it's that our governments. No, I'm trying are, to agree with trying you. Trying to. Yeah, <laughs> I understand that. Our, our governments are, are not using that as a last resort, like you mentioned. They're, they're thinking yeah. of it as a first resort. Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is they messed with us. You know what? Well, I, I think what happens is the State Department, right? You ask the State Department, hey, what can we do about Saddam? Yeah. And they're like, well, we've been working on it for however long he's been in power, you know, and we'll keep working on it. And right. the president's like, well, crap, how does that help me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? right. And then they go to the Department of Defense, you know, and they say, hey, what can we do about Saddam? Yeah. And he gets a lot of options, I assume. And one of the options looks really clean and easy. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you go in, you decapitate Saddam, and boom, you're done. Iraq, right. boom, we're, we're, we finished it. And, right. you know, my dad's Kuwait defense, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So the the wh- what are you going to do? I mean, as a president, when those are your options, what are you going to do? Well, you're probably going to side with the military solution that looks like it's going to decapitate the snake and everybody's going to love you and we're, we'll be greeted as, as mm-hmm. liberators. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. So we go in there. We <laughs> greeted as liberators for about 48 hours, right? And then not so much, right? And then right. all of the internal problems that have been there before we got there. Right. But now we're the number one target because we're the ones from, you know, across the ocean that have wandered in there and, you know. Absolutely. So, and so yeah. I don't, I, I think I understand how it happens because I think I understand how from everybody's perspective that this looks like a good idea at the time. And then we go, Oh, wow, we've been at war in Iraq for how many, you know, years? And maybe we need to, you know, so you get the Petraeus and, you know, you get the, the counterinsurgency folks and you know now it's whatever it is now because i haven't paid attention to iraq for several months but um yeah so well, you end up in yeah, decades of have, war yeah, where children you... who have children who are 14 years old have never not lived in a state of war at this point and so what happens so sad. like for instance in the case of saddam hussein like so you okay so you decapitate the head of the snake supposedly that's what you think you've done so you think the whole snake's just gonna die but the Problem is, you just cut off one of the heads of the snake. Well, yeah, one of the <laughs> and, and big, now now they're over there trying to decide whether it's going to be ISIS is going to have the last say, or is it going to be the Sunnis or the Shiite, or you know who is it? Who is it that's going to? So there's so now you've unleashed something. Even though he was a horrific dictator, there was still a sense of of um, what would you say non non chaos, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> control that you, you can argue with it. Well, for me, no. it's it, the whether or not you've succeeded depends on how many people are suffering, right? Yeah. So if so, if Saddam had prisons where he arbitrarily threw his political enemies into them, and you know, hundreds of people, and that's awful. I mean, that's absolutely awful. Right. But as opposed to a like in perfect hindsight, as opposed to a, a road where hundreds of thousands of millions of Iraqis die, right? Then from my utilitarian perspective, it, that is the worst course, even if, uh, you have to leave, 
you know, a nasty guy in yeah. in power. Yeah. But but you can't know these things. Is the the problem with my ethical philosophy is that you can never know these things in advance. You can just kind of say, oh, hey, it's a you know whatever's best for the most people, but you don't actually know how it's going to turn out ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, well, that's I, my, that's my argument with nuclear weapons. Like people, you, you, okay. So they haven't been used in anger again for 60 years. So that would suggest that in evaluation, you'd say, well, I guess they did some good, you know, maybe prevented world war three or whatever, you know, by deterrence well, and so forth. But, but we don't know, we don't know the long term. You see that whole, that whole assessment could change overnight with one either accidental or intentional bombing of a major city yeah know. when when nations are at war and the bomb has not been discovered yet right the race to the bomb is inevitable right, right? like there was right. no stopping the race to the nuclear bomb right or 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 the crossbow you know or yeah. the longbow or the you know, any other instrument of war and right. the one that got there first was the one that's yeah the trebuchet revolutionized right. the crossbow yeah. right crossbow's a better example how sad you know that so we're putting our best scientific minds and talent to work learning how to kill people more effectively before they can kill us. Yeah. I mean, well, there's a lot living of money in, in it. Living in fear mentality. Oh yeah. A lot of tax dollars. A huge are, amount of money. Yeah. That's one of the issues I think we faced in trying to raise questions about the new nuclear weapons plant in Kansas city. We went down and tried to present an alternative perspective about what can be done with that site to actually create jobs, which are green jobs, you know, environmental jobs, not mean jobs, which have to do with killing people. What, and, did you propose that it start producing solar panels or something? Or what yeah, did you, that was the idea mm-hmm. and so forth. And um, I, I don't know those, as we tried to have those discussions with people, it always came back to the jobs issue. You know, that was what they, uh, and they had a specific plan and we didn't have a specific plan, like who would, do what and so forth, and but they had one, a bird in the hand, and that was you know, a couple thousand jobs, both for construction and for ongoing jobs and so forth. And so it was that was kind of the end of the discussion. It's all about jobs, not about the moral or ethical or human cost, long range or nothing like that. It's about like what's what's going on right now. So so nothing happened. They they built a new plant down there. And we've had about 150 people, 150 arrests down there at that new site trying to say, you know what? We don't really need these weapons of mass destruction. We don't need to modernize them. That's what they're doing now. Like they're, okay, so the number's going down, but by modernization, we're creating, we're, we're enhancing the effectiveness of them. In other words, their ability to kill more people than they, than they had before. And we're, we keep trying to say, you know what? This, this is just, ridiculous i mean the, the the image that i keep coming back to is the 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 emperor and his and his clothing i don't know if you remember that old fable mm-hmm. about the you know the, the the emperor and he was sold a bill of goods by this guy he was going to weave him the finest cloth if he just gave him enough gold to buy the gold thread and enough silver to buy the silver thread and actually all he was doing was just you know squirreling it away for himself but he duped the king into thinking you know only royalty can see this fine fabric when i get it completed so he comes in and shows it to the king and the king goes wow that's so beautiful and everybody else because they're afraid of the king and they don't want to appear stupid or or you know incompetent they go wow that is beautiful you know and so the king has a royal procession and he goes down through the city in this parade and everything with his you know buck naked but (laughs) everyone going oh wow beautiful clothes you know (laughs) except for finding some kid says the emperor has no clothes (laughs) yeah and all of a sudden the game's over (laughs) 
And I think that's what I hope for really about nuclear weapons is at some point they're going to be delegitimized. People are going to say, geez, you know, these things, if you have them, you can't use them, (laughs) you know, without killing yourself. They're really suicidal weapons. You're going to destroy yourself along with your enemy. So don't we, so the, so Congress sets the budget for the country, right? Mm-hmm. Including right. the Department of Defense and right. including the whatever. Right. And if, if we want, you know, $200 million jet fighters instead of however much the nuclear program costs, which I have no idea what the budget is, yeah. then each, can each of us, um, what, through our senators then? State senators would be the people who can actually control the budget and actually right. get an accelerated uh, program of right. These are federal. Like the the president gives speeches right. about nuclear deproliferation mm-hmm. and downsizing and agreements with the with the Russia Soviet Union. What's it called now? Russia. Russia. Yeah. Russian Federation. Is that right? Well, I'm not sure I don't about remember. that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, with Putin and whoever. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, so are there candidates that for Congress candidates for president or, I mean, my, my understanding of the political landscape is that a strong defense is one of the pillars of American politics where you have to, you know, swear that ethanol is a great thing and that strong defense is a great thing. And, right. uh, that, you know, religion is a great thing and, these are and social security must be defended. These are the things you cannot touch. These are the sacred cows of American politics. Right. Has there ever been a candidate that said, "Hey, we don't need as many nukes as this"? Or, <laughs> well, yeah, there was actually one. His name is Ronald Reagan. This is so, kind of a shock to a lot of people, you know, because the uh, people often think of Ronald Reagan as the, you know, like the the right. Political mm-hmm. right is like he's their guy, you know. Yeah. Like if Reagan did it, wow, that's just amazing, you know. Well, Reagan sat down with Gorbachev with a sincere intent of actually eliminating nuclear weapons. Zero. In his Reagan zero, zero? zero nuclear weapons w- between Russia and the United States forever. They actually came just within a hair's breadth of doing that. If it hadn't been maybe, I don't know all the history, but part of it was the Star Wars thing, you know, where we had this idea that yeah, we, we, wanted could, the we could block shield. incoming, you know, missiles with a defense shield and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of like the stumbling block when it finally came down to it. I, I understand. I'm not too up on that, but I think that was a major part of it. So this and could so have been it, over in the 80s? That's right. We could that's have. correct. <laughs> And they, they came really within a hair's breadth. They, because Gorbachev also realized that this was insanity. This was suicide, mutual suicide, like two scorpions in a bottle, you know. So, okay, you know, they end up killing each other, you know, and, and they, they were sincere. I mean, they really both, if you read the histories that I haven't read a lot of it, but what I've read, I think they both thought that could actually happen with their agreement. So how did that, just came that how close. How that not? recurred in the last 30 years. <laughs> well, I don't understand. That's a darn good question. If it can ever Why be said, yeah. well, right, especially from a hero of one of the political parties that controls well, yeah, Congress. Yeah. See, but no one, no one on the political right that I've ever heard has ever said, wow, well, that's there I'm was saying. a model. Let's go back to that. That was a Reaganomics, you know, kind of an issue. You know, let's, let's go back to, we want to go back to Reaganomics. But why not? But we don't, well, I have no idea. Oh, I mean, right. I, I mean, I do have some, some speculations as to why not, because it has to do with the, what Dwight D. Eisenhower warned us about when he 
left office, he said, hey, there's this thing called the military-industrial complex, which now I would say is the military-industrial entertainment uh, educational <laughs> well, et they cetera, can, they can, complex. They it's, can just spend that money on cooler drones or something. They well, could just shift the money. I'm not, I'm not even saying yeah. you have to disassemble the military-industrial complex. Right. You could just say, hey, guys, this category of stuff is not cool. Enough's enough. Go do other uncool stuff with that same money. Right. But, right? Like, you couldn't you make that argument that, hey, we're not, we're not cutting defense at all. What we're doing is we're just saying it's more important to have these whatever things than to have nuclear bombs. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I don't understand why we can't do that. Like, for instance, uh, JFK started the Peace Corps, you know, saying, you know what? A way to make peace would be to send our brightest and youngest young adults out there and have them spend two years doing alternative service, alternative military service, you know, as an alternative to military service, and they could go out there and do a lot of good, and man, nations would love us. Well, that was a heck of a great idea, you know, and proven effective, I think. So why, see, it's a mystery. So why didn't we go that route? Well, I think it has to do... The Peace Corps with, is still a thing, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and that was some of them last week. Yeah, they're still going strong, yeah. yeah. But, but why didn't that take hold? And I think the answer, as best I can figure it is, follow the money. If I've learned anything in 68 years, it's follow the money. Yeah. And I think there's just a lot of money to be made in the, in the, you know, the military, industrial, educational, yeah. entertainment, uh, whatever. It's violence sells, you know, there's it's a just, lot of money in it. Right, right. No, yeah. I, right. So, I, I think you and I are on the, the same page here that, that, that's, that's true of all of life as far as I can tell in my almost 40 years. Um, and, and, the the trick it seems to me is to take nukes off the table is one of the ways to spend way too much money like that's fine yeah. we can spend way too much money let's just start with not spending it on this stuff well anymore. yeah we have ten thousand of these and they're proven effective I mean it's not like they're you couldn't use them you know I mean come on really what what's the problem here I uh, if a, if a hundred of them would kill basically a billion people. And a thousand of them would basically end life as we know it. And we still in the United States have control over, you know, eight or 10,000 of them, let's say. Um, why isn't that enough? Why don't we say enough is enough? Well, I'm and now to we're going to allocate our money. Now to, that you told me Reagan would said zero in the eighties, I'm yeah. trying to figure out politically why we can't get back to that. Yeah. Well, okay. I think, and Obama said, I think, yeah, that. Obama went to Prague about five years ago and said, Hey, we're going to reduce it, yeah. our reliance on and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons. Right, Maybe right. not in my lifetime, but that's the goal. Yeah. And then he did go to Russia and, and reduced the number of deployed, actively deployed nuclear weapons. But the thing I don't understand as a, as a peace activist, I guess, is, is why can't he just by executive order as the chief executive and the commander in chief of armed forces why can't he just say you know what we have these weapons on you know kind of like a hair trigger alert you know in such a way that there's really only about 20 minutes between you know one side launching and the other side doing a counter launch you know why can't we say to those countries first of all we're not going to be the first use nation why can't we take that off the table but we don't it's still there Every time they talk about all options are on the table, that's code language for, well, guess what? We have the big stick, you know, and that's still on the table. So why can't he do that? 
for one thing, just to immediately take a lot of air out of the balloon right there. That would deflate a huge amount of all the buildup, you know. Well, that's, secondly, that why we, can't he just go to zero anyway, right? Because if you're well, not on eventually, but yeah, but I mean, I mean, as soon as <laughs> let's you be realistic, you know, you're not going to go to zero. But there are things that could be done, like today. President Obama could say, you know what? We're going to promise to the world we're not going to ever use nuclear weapons as a first strike weapon. That's my promise to you as the United States of America today. Now, I mean, he can't speak for ever, like for future presidents, but he can say that today. And he could also say, and we're going to change the window of alert and we're going to make it much longer so that we have more time to think about this other than 20 minutes. I mean, it's unthinkable. Think about that. 20 minutes. Let's say the, let's say he's off off out on a vacation or something, you know, and, and something like this happens. You've got 20 minutes to decide whether to end the world or not. That's just, it's, it's unbelievable. You're going, really? So why can't we say we're reducing that window ourselves of our own initiative because we're, we're trying to reduce our reliance on nuclear weapons and we're trying to get the world to go and do likewise. Why can't he say, you know what? We're going to, we're going to change this window. It's not just going to be 20 minutes. Now it's going to be 24 hours. He could do that like today. He doesn't have to have Congress to do, to authorize that. Well, what I'm saying Either is, one of these actions could be done. If you say that, what you're saying is we won't use them because well, 24 are, are hours later, are we already saying too- that we won't use them? I mean, think about it. Come on, are we really going to go there and, and and nuke somebody when we realize that they could nuke us back and destroy us? They're already ineffective. They're, they're, no one's going to use these weapons. Except, I don't agree. It's going to be. I, I think. Act, well, there may be some crazy. No, I think we would use them. I, I think we have. We're okay with killing lots of civilians as long as we got the guy that we wanted to kill. I think we're fine with that as a military <laughs> oh strategy. Gosh. I hope you're not right. <laughs> you don't. No, that's true. I mean, all the you, you were saying it earlier, right? As a military strategy, if we got to blow up a wedding party because we think a terrorist is there, yeah. and we're kind of maybe sure, but you know, a judge doesn't need to decide that or nothing. Yeah. They don't have any oversight from anyone. Yeah. Well, you may be right. I, I remember. I, I real thought this cl- is what you were telling me. I'm not. Well, the- I, re- I remember real clearly when uh, we were in the midst of the big Iraqi buildup, and Donald Rumsfeld, uh, you know, basically said that you know that we we have these weapons and we have first strike capacity, and if we were to need to use that, that we would. So yes, I guess I'd have to say that that as unbelievable as that is to me, that we, we our unwillingness to s- declare that we won't use them suggests that we are willing to use them. As a matter of fact, that's why deterrent works is because you threaten to use them. And if it's a believable threat, then these, these other nations will you know, act in a certain way. I mean, yeah. We have to premise. be the crazy cowboys. Right. Otherwise we have we, to, we have to no be, one, yeah. Right. Yeah, we have to be crazy and suicidal. <laughs> well, I mean, well, we, as a, as a nation, we don't have to be suicidal, but we, yeah, I, I think the holy crap, the Americans could roll in deterrent effect on, you know, leaders who are, you know, run around doing whatever the hell they want and that don't care what the, what the international community thinks is okay or not. Mm-hmm. I think the cowboy effect of holy crap, I'm terrified of George Bush because look, he, does yeah. whatever he wants, kind of, you know, uh, you know, about not to pick on a Bush specifically because Obama's had, well, anyway, I'm just not, <laughs> I shouldn't pick sides in the political thing because I, I'm not well, impressed. What I, what I always marvel at is, and I don't understand is, uh, Martin Luther King back in the sixties, he told us, I think as clearly as you possibly could 
that the idea of violence being effective is not true. It's actually counter-effective because violence just simply begets more violence. Yeah, Gandhi. And yeah, and Gandhi and Jesus and a lot of other people have had this uh, a similar insight. And I haven't heard of Jesus. Who's that guy? <laughs> well, he's he's rather well known around still. Oh, okay. Um, and so he said, and I, it's this image always stuck with me because it's kind of visual, and I'm kind of a visual person. He said that, uh, and I'll paraphrase it in 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 the land of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Ultimately, all will end up blind and toothless. Yeah. And that's, that's his, that's his answer to the myth of redemptive violence, which a number of observers say is the myth that actually runs our world. The idea that might makes right and that peace through strength and so forth. That's, that's the myth that people more, even more so than any religious belief or whatever. That's the real myth that most of the world is living by is that, that peace through strength. And, and that violence works, you know, and it's redemptive, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's the whole thing. You see it over and over and over again. And it's particularly in the U S media, you know, it's always the, the idea that ultimately the good guy has to become a bad guy, use violence to kill the real bad guys. And what I've always struck with is that sometimes at the end of the movie, often at the end of the movie, you can't tell a good guy from the bad guy. He's so all pumped up and covered with blood and so forth to the, the Rambo image, you know, uh, who's the good guy here, you know, and who's the bad guy. You really can't tell the difference anymore. And I just think there's a better way. And I think that Gandhi and Jesus and Martin Luther King all found a better way. It makes a whole heck of a lot more sense to me than war, which we repeatedly you know, have proven is ineffective in the long run. I mean, it solves problems imminently and temporarily, but ultimately people have to move out of fear and into respect and trust and regard and things like that. Um, and that's, that's our hope, I think, for humanity, that we can quit being so fearful and quit listening to the yellow alerts and the orange alerts and all these ways in which the militarists try to stir up fear so that the populace will say, oh, yeah, got to have those weapons, got to got to arm ourselves to the teeth, got to go out there and show the bad guys. You know, it's always bad guys, you know. You ever notice that? It's like we're going out there and get the bad guys. Well, like as if that makes us the good guys. You know what? Everybody is some bad and some good, in my opinion. Everybody is a mixture of shadow and light. And when you go projecting all the shadow off on someone else and you think that, oh, wow, I'm a being of light and light alone, those are the dangerous guys, you know, the really dangerous guys. The people that I have regard for, the people who say, you know, I have a lot of human failings. I am human. And I'm, in that regard, the same as everyone else. And I have no no desire or right to say that I'm, I've got all the answers, everything about me is right and everything about you is wrong. And so therefore I can kill you because you're so other and so different from me that you're really not even a human being. That's, that's the whole premise of war is that you have to, you have to train your soldiers to say that those enemy combatants, we want to call them not humans, they're enemy combatants. And then we use a lot of other names that I won't go into to dehumanize them further than you. Everybody's heard all these names from World War One and Two and so forth and dehumanize them in such a way that you can supposedly, without guilt, think more, no more about killing them and you think about, you know, 
killing a rat. They're not really human anymore. And that just leads to a vicious cycle in which everybody goes down ultimately if you keep that up. So you have to raise up an alternative. And that's what I think we're trying to do is to say, you know what, let's back off this first responder violent thing, you know, <laughs> let's try out some of these nonviolent approaches and see maybe just maybe these things would actually do a lot more good in the long run. Maybe if we just spent the same amount of money and actually underwritten all kinds of social improvement projects in Iraq, we'd be a heck of a lot better off now than it is now where the whole infrastructure is ruined, where the, where the populace surely must as a whole hate us. Uh, think what it could have been if we'd have spent, sent more Peace Corps type people over there to make a difference instead of the way we've, we approached it. Yeah. So it looks like uh, peaceworkskc.org is the website for That's PeaceWorks it. Kansas City. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here in Nebraska, I know there's an organization called Nebraskans for Peace. I've seen oh. the I've seen the blue and white, I think, uh, bumper stickers around oh, really? town. Oh. I have not gone to any of their meetings or anything, so I don't know uh, anything about them. But That's I'll great. link to that website, too. Well, that'd be something like what I said earlier, like the, the amazing part about in despair because you're thinking, wow, the whole thing is going that way, and you're trying to go upstream about a group here in Nebraska that I had no idea about. It's working away, trying to create conditions. Kind of like um, what Howard Zinn at one point wrote a book, you know, basically, ultimately, it's going to prevail. People are finally going to say, you know what, this is, re in essence, the politicians have no option but to respond. Just like the, like the, I remember Vietnam protests, and I remember in, as people went back and wrote histories about that, they were honest. That's the thing that actually caused us to back off of Vietnam ultimately. It was only ended because enough people stood up and said, hell no, I won't go. And you know, even the politicians had to recognize, wow, we don't have, you know, we don't have the ability just to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And <laughs> off we go. Yeah, well, yeah, we've been running <laughs> on the huge fear mode, you know, end of the free and the home of the brave. And I, I just think we're running scared. And because we treat them like enemies, that guess what? <laughs> they become enemies. Yeah. And we just. Uh, so is your event that you're organizing at Community of Christ, is that on a. PeaceWorks KC. Oh, on PeaceWorks. Uh, okay. Dot org okay. website. And it will ultimately be. Well, which cool. is uh, C C O F C H R I S T to the website or the show notes for the podcast. Sounds good. And maybe someone will listen to it. One way or another. Oh, well, good. Yeah. yeah. I'm uh, slowly maybe uh, asking slightly less inane questions and fiddling with the <laughs> microphone less. This is our eighth or ninth episode, and I, I'm slowly starting to figure out some of the things that I shouldn't say because I have to clip them out later. So yeah. <laughs> uh, after about 50 more years of this, maybe I'll be good at it. Who hey, knows? You can't tell. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Dad. You're welcome there, son. Bye. Bye.